E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. My dad is an interesting guy. He was a Formula race car driver a medic in the Vietnam War, and a playwright. He rides a Harley and only drinks Grand Meunier. In short, he's an all-around unique guy, and he has some pretty incredible stories. In this dad tale, he tells the story about the time when my grandfather tried making beer for the first and only time. Well, my father didn't tell me much about Prohibition because we lived in Maine, And we came from Detroit, and I was born in Detroit. And I always wondered why my relatives would come to see us in Maine, but we never went to Detroit. Well, I found out later that my father was a bootlegger in Detroit and had run-ins with a purple gang. And apparently, uh, we had to get out of town. So we lived in the sticks of Maine and um, grew up. And, and I, uh, the Purple Game na- never came after us because they killed themselves off. So uh, I never learned about the Purple Gang until I went uh, back to Detroit years later finding our roots and then I found out uh, but anyway growing up in the coast of Maine my father brought his bootlegging skills and we made whiskey uh, we had stills we had one still out in the woods and a in a quick takedown model on the stove and we'd be he'd be there uh, distilling all kinds of spirits and I never liked it. I never liked the taste of any of this stuff. And he'd be out there uh, with a flame, getting the blue flame, uh, showing the degree of alcohol that, that he was producing. And uh, so one time he wanted to experiment and start making beer. He didn't know anything about making beer. We had a basement full of uh, all kinds of whiskey and peach brandy 
and all the, all our all his friends would come there and want to get booze. And even during World War II, we had all these soldiers coming in to our place, wanting good uh, booze, good whiskey, and it was quite an eye-opening to talk to all these World War II people during. Because I was born in 1940, I was like five years old, and and seeing all these soldiers and everything, and uh, and and I grew up, uh, you know, talking to all the military people. Well, uh, so we came to making beer. He didn't know anything about making beer, and he used Fleischmann's yeast and all this kind of stuff. And... We didn't have the right yeast and everything. Uh, but anyway, he we bottled up all this beer, and uh, we put it down in the basement, and we, uh, he had a, a capping rig and everything. And all these bottles of beer. And then one day, we heard all these explosions. And it was just one bottle blowing up after another. And it blew up all the peach brandy and all the whiskey and everything. And we found pieces of glass stuck in the door and everything. It was, all the stuff was gone. It was just a mess. And from then on, uh, we never made any more beer. (laughs) (laughs) I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to IdealWine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to see for yourself what you could be drinking. Peter Wasserman on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? Very well. How are you? Nice to see you. I'm glad to be here. So your family is very much associated with Burgundy. When did your mom move there and and how did that come about? We moved there in 1968 um, after mom and dad, and I think I was there, took a little trip in 1967. They went through the countryside in Burgundy and found this house. They both fell in love with it. Dad made a pitch. Uh, the lady who was there uh, decided to sell it at one condition that she would live on it for the rest of her life. And that's how our Burgundy adventure started. She got into the wine business much later. Um, Your mom did? Yeah, yeah. She usually says, um, I got into the business because I had to get away from my husband financially. 
No, but it's important, probably, and somewhat difficult for probably a, a lot of women who maybe even were were born in France to have, you know, be financially independent. Exactly, exactly. What was funny is she actually got into the barrel business first, and uh, uh, we we lived for about four years in a little town called Saint-Romain, and this is where François Frère barrels are made, and uh, uh, Mr. François asked mom to go collect on a on a check uh, on a barrel actually in oregon and that was her first trip and all because she also you know could go to the states and interact with the people there and so exactly. that would be a natural choice exactly but i mean what was that introduction like it's the late 60s and all the king of hippie times and the mom Beatles and dad were hippies and, and it, it was a sight uh when dad actually walked through the place carnot and bone with uh, bell bottoms, uh, no shoes, long hair, and a trip shirt. I got to tell you, in Burgundy, that was something nobody had seen before. Wasn't that also the time of kind of a revolutionary uh, strife within certain parts of France? Or? Yeah, we actually landed uh, during the revolution. The Orly airport was closed. Uh, we got diverted to Switzerland and literally had to take a taxi from Switzerland to Burgundy. Because the students were revolting in the streets. Exactly, and they had closed down the airports. And how did that affect the outlying areas? I mean, were there social ramifications for that for you? Absolutely. Uh, there was uh, there was incidents all over the country. And how did people take to these Americans being here? I mean, this was an area before time where before Burgundy really hit with American consumers. There couldn't have been that many American visitors in the cellars. No, there were very, very few. Um, uh, in fact, only maybe maybe. 20, we'd see 20 American couples come through Burgundy a year. And um, they had been purchasing Burgundy here in the United States. Essentially stuff uh, brought in by uh, uh, Schoonmacher, Alexis Lachine, Colonel Wildman. And uh, they asked to go taste at the most famous estates. So essentially that was Romani Conti and Armand Rousseau and, and maybe Lefleve. So we ended up being the translators for them and taking them there. And we become fast friends, for example, with uh, Aubert de Vilaine and uh, Hubert de Monti, uh, who were two of my uh, parents' best friends. And um, that's how we got to know the domains. Your mom was working with barrels for how long? I don't recall exactly when she sold the business, but um, when she started being extraordinarily serious about the actual wine business is when she divested herself of the of the uh, barrel business, sold it to uh, Mel Knox, who's famous all over California. And uh, the only man I know who can uh, actually joke bilingually in the same joke and for it to work. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Showed. <laughs> you know. Exactly. So, so your mom was involved in the barrel business. Where did that take her to lay the base for the later wine business? Well, what happened is that she, uh, uh, she met a lot, of, of course, of uh, the American winemakers. And they all wanted to come over to uh, meet Francois. Jean-François Francois, and um, uh, he would set up tastings at which mom would take uh, some of these uh, winemakers, which went beyond the DRC and Rousseau. And that's how she met a lot of the uh, first uh, winemakers she worked with. So that was the, the changing point. That was really what happened. You know, it's kind of odd because when we think that she got her, her start with barrels, because, you know, a lot of the producers that you represent, at least today, aren't known for using a lot of new oak or, you know, weren't even known for using a lot of new oak during the, the kind of times when that was super fashionable and people were using 200% new oak. Do you think 
did she kind of say, well, maybe I'm not so into the oak thing. Maybe I, I want to do a wine business not well, so oaked up. Or That was probably part of the thought process. However, I must uh, uh, say that we do have some winemakers who use a lot of oak, some of them 100%. Uh, what we try to, to work with is wines where the oak is not quite as noticeable, but it really depends on the density that you get in the wine and uh, whether it takes the oak or it integrates it very, very well. So what about Peter? You're a young guy, Aubert du Valence, hanging out at the dinner table. Here's the guy who runs DRC, Hubert uh, de Montes there, Duke de Magentis hanging out at the house. I mean, you're running around these guys, and what was that like? Well, they were my parents' friends, so we hung out. So you out. hated them. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, we hung out with uh, uh, the younger crowd, the, the sons and daughters. For example, one of my childhood friends is Etienne de Montilly. But we, we always were made to taste a little bit of the wine at table, just a little bit from, from early age on. I was actually dispatched, uh, my brother, the same thing as well, to translate when my parents couldn't go and take people to the wineries. So we started tasting on really, really early. But a fun anecdote is uh, I was sitting at the table, and on one side of me was Hubert de Monti, and on the other side was Aubert de Vilaine. And Hubert de Monti essentially said, kid, you're not going to know how to taste until you're 45 years old. And Hubert was he talking to Hubert or no, you? Hubert <laughs> That'd was, be pretty uh, funny if he was talking to Hubert du Valet. Uh, Hubert was talking to me, and Hubert <laughs> to add, um, and when you're 45, you'll know that you know nothing. And, and it's true. And it, has that been the truth? And uh, yes, I, I had a real steep learning curve from the moment I started working retail to about maybe five years ago, where I realized that there was no way I could have the certitudes that I had. Today, I'm much more uh, careful in, in saying what a vintage is going to be like, if it's going to shut down for a long time, so on and so forth. Did you move right away into retail? Did you know from the beginning, hey, I want to get in the wine business, or how did, how did things come along? For the longest time, I didn't want to be in the wine business at all. I mean, really, I didn't want to lose my innocence. Uh, I didn't want it to become a job. I wanted to enjoy wine, and I was very afraid of, uh, of uh, going into the business would compromise my love of wine. So I was in the film business for 16 years. Oh, you I, were? I literally burned out. And my first phone call was to my mother and saying, you can't find me a job, please, at retail. I just want to be a stock boy. And, you know, get rent in and do something where I don't have to be responsible. I'm in, in the film business, I had huge responsibilities. And so I go on my first interview, and it was with uh, Bernie Weiser of 67. And Bernie sits me down um, at a cafe. And I say, I would like very much to become a stock uh, boy for you. I think uh, I'll do a good job for your business because I know how to read uh, uh, French, German, Italian, and Spanish, and, uh, and English, of course, and I'll put the right bottles on the right shelf. And he looked at me and he says, you, you're Peter Wasserman, right? You're Becky's son. And I go, yeah. He says, I can't hire you as a stock boy. My heart sank. Literally, I didn't think I was good enough to even do that. <laughs> so um, he immediately offered me a job actually on the floor, and then pretty soon I was a buyer. And, oh, okay. Uh, so it wasn't like, you're one of those Wassermans. You're X'd out forever. <laughs> no. Don't even come back to the store. No, mom, actually, one of mom's very first sales calls in New York was to Bernie Weiser. So uh, so he knew where you were coming from. Absolutely. You, you had tasted some wines from your childhood, and, absolutely. and you knew the territory. And, and Well, I knew a bit about Burgundy. In fact, 
the extent of which I knew or which I thought I knew was maybe 20 domains that I had tasted uh, on a rather regular basis. But I didn't think I knew how to taste wine. I didn't think I had any education as far as uh, wine was concerned. I was extraordinarily apprehensive about other regions like Bordeaux and uh, the rest of the world. I didn't really know my varietals. And it was at uh, retail that I learned all that. Bernie basically sat me down when he interviewed me. He pulled 12 wines. Uh, he had me uh, he had me taste uh, through all the wines. And of course, every single wine I picked out were the high acid, beautiful structure bottles that could age. And he simply looked at me, shook his head and said, you fucking French. Because <laughs> this was also the time period where most Americans were not going for those bottles. Um, it was about 15 years ago. So um, there was a small group of old world drinkers. And of course, the people who were coming through the ranks, so to speak, we're, we're, we're looking at domestic wines first and then maybe going to Old World second. It was great because it taught me how to actually understand a customer's palate, try to get them something that they would really appreciate, and then very slowly but surely uh, introduce them to other things. Not necessarily Burgundy and not necessarily Old World immediately, but things that had a slightly different perspective to offer. And how long did you work with Bernie? About three years. And were there moments that really stood out for you in those three years that you were working at 67? Yeah, absolutely. Bernie, who was quite fantastic, allowed me to do a blind tasting every night, or actually a tasting for customers every night, and I turned it into a blind tasting every night, and essentially uh, pretty much two tastings out of three were Burgundy. And uh, I would generally uh, put a, a normal Bourgogne Rouge, a regional wine, a village-level wine, a premier crew, and uh, a grand crew, and simply had people taste through the lineup, tell me which was the wine that they preferred, very simply, without having them try to uh, find out what it was, or so on and so forth. And then I would reveal the bottles, and more often than not, actually, people liked the village-level wine. Because it was more ready to drink, maybe? Uh, of course, because it was more ready to drink, it was more satisfying, more pleasing immediately, uh, uh, it, it really delivered. Well, eventually you kind of swung back to work with the, the family again. And mm -hmm. what was that like for you and how did that come about? Well, once I started working retail, I then realized that I should work some wholesale. So I did a little bit of wholesale. I came into wholesale at a very, very difficult moment. I came in one month after 9-11. And uh, essentially I didn't sell a bottle for, uh, for uh, six months. Actually, the first two bottles, literally two bottles that I sold were to Jean-Luc Ledoux when he was at Daniel and they were... Uh, to 500 mLs of uh, Coteau du Léon. <laughs> that was my first sale. So at the end of that period, that's when mom said, well, would you consider coming to work for us? Of course, I jumped on the occasion. That, that's it. Since then, I've been working with them. And so let's paint the picture a little bit. I mean, what does your mom and that company do today? She used to do barrels. Then she started up her own wine concern. She worked as an agent for a bit. What's the company like today? Well, it's an extraordinary team. Three of the people, without counting mom and or Russell, her husband. Um, who's have, a cool cat. Who's a tool. That I like totally a lot. Totally cool cat. Um, have been there for, uh, uh, I think, the, the uh, all this. I mean, our CEO, uh, Dominique Taru, who's uh, uh, Alain Berger's companion, has been there for 25 years, I think. 
Carolyn Jolie, who's head of sales, has been there for at least 16 years, I believe. Then we have a couple new uh, ladies who are with us. Uh, Danielle, who's uh, fantastic and, and sort of assists uh, Caro and, uh, and Dominique and, and Swazik. Uh, Swazik is our logistics person. And um, Lise, who's a general assistant as well. It's a great, great group. And Mom has really created a women-driven company. Because um, all those people are women that you just yes, spoke about. Yes, absolutely. All those people are women, with the exception of Russell, who's the token, uh, uh, the token guy there. And my brother and I are actually consultants to that business, and we're not actually directly employed by the business. And who are some of the people that the company works with? Ooh. Uh, there's a long list, so I'll start with some of our uh, domains that have been with us the longest. Uh, one of the very, very first domains to, to uh, say yes to mom was uh, Domain Lafarge in Volnay, uh, Alain Berguet in uh, Gevray-Chambertin, Denis Bachelet in Gevray-Chambertin as well, uh, Frédéric Munier, but then we have, uh, oh, Gérard Munieret as well. Then we have just a slew of other Burgundians, some of the uh, young and Upcoming uh, winemakers are Sylvain Pataille in Marcinet, Benjamin LaRue, who's a micro-négociant, boutique négociant, who spans Côte de Bonne to Côte de Nuit, David Croix, Camille Giroux, he's the managing director and winemaker at Camille Giroux, but he also has his own domain called Domaine des Croix, and uh, Nicolas Rossignol, for example, Dominique Munieret, and um, Caroline Gagnard from Jean-Noël Gagnard in Chassagne-Marché, uh, Olivier Lamy, whom I absolutely adore in Saint-Aubin, and um, just an extraordinarily dynamic group. A lot of the growers uh, that we work with recommend other growers to work with us. For example, we've, uh, in 2008, started working with Domaine Bruno Claire in Marcenay. Somewhere around there, we started working as well with Bonneau du Martre, and all of them, when they spot someone that they think is, is worthy of tasting and, and meeting us, uh, we'll recommend them to us and we'll start tasting. What are some of these people like? I mean, I think you have somewhat of a unique perspective because you've seen not just the growth in the market, but you've seen the change in generations. You've seen estates evolve. You've seen early relationships that are more relationships as friends turn into relationships that also involve some business. Uh, you know, who are some of the standout personalities and, and what do you remember about them and what do you see in them? It's an extraordinarily diverse group. I'd say that there's some, um, uh, in the older generation, there's some people that had never traveled outside the region. And mom uh, started taking them uh, on trips to the United States, for example. So they uh, they grew from that experience and they, they were uh, quite fascinated with um, how people received them and, and received the wines. And then the younger group, who was interned all over the world um, and have seen, you know, a production from New Zealand to South America, South Africa, America, and are, are quite world savvy. What I like about uh, the growers we work with is the, the, the honesty, integrity, the commitment to uh, passing on the land to their children in a better state than what they received it in. They don't look at themselves as owners. They look at themselves as custodians. And um, that's, uh, uh, that's something which I feel is quite different from the rest of the world. 
Do you feel like you were a bridge for a lot of American winemakers or the or your mom or the company was a bridge for a lot of American winemakers who wanted to come and learn about Burgundy and then also for the Burgundians to approach the American market, which has been, I think, probably fabulously successful for Burgundy as a whole in mm-hmm. terms of the American market's uh, uh, embrace of Burgundy? Mom was certainly a bridge uh, for for Americans to come and work in uh, in Burgundy, and um, uh, the, but there were a few pioneers like Ted Lemon, for example, who uh, who had been there and and started working. So it, it wasn't who worked something, for a Rulo. Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, it wasn't unheard of in in the in the small circles uh, that California was at the time. But she's definitely facilitated quite a few, uh, uh, quite a few people to come uh, work here, and the contrary, quite a few people uh, to intern and and work in the United States um, as well, so that their eyes were open to different methods of productions, different thought processes, and so on. Who are some of the names that kind of went and worked with your mom and maybe met a few winemakers and saw the territory in their time? Well, Jim Clendenin comes to mind. Uh, the first time I met Jim, uh, I was coming back from California. I was still in film school. And I walked into Mom's extraordinarily tiny office. I mean, it was a one-room uh, affair. And there was this uh, sort of curly-haired, blonde ponytail bobbing up and down at uh, one wall uh, with a with a paint roller and pink dockside's and uh, he turns around and I meet this young man from California who is Jim Clendenin and I, I believe it's with mom that he found a, or through mom that he found an internship and I uh, if I'm not mistaken it was Lafon and also Lafon worked for your mom Dominique Lafon worked Yes for Dominique did work before he he started working for uh, for the family winery Dominique fresh out from the army uh, in, in France we also had a draft like in America and uh, he came to work for mom, and he was really one of the guys who went out with mom and started sourcing in a major way. And uh, he would go and spend like three days in the Beaujolais and come back with uh, three or four domains to taste and so on and so forth. And then uh, mom sent him on his first business trip uh, to uh, to the United States and got him a, uh, got him a suit and a good pair of shoes and uh, a nice uh, overcoat and... Bye-bye, Dominique. There you go. You're doing a trip on your own. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people know these wines as wines, or they know these last names as, as wines that they've encountered. But what are some of these people like as people? I mean, I, I, you and Jim Clendenin, I think, became pretty fast friends. And, you know, you have a long history with the Lafon family, who has, you know, like his forebears kind of invented the idea of La Palais. And, yeah. you know, there's a lot of history amongst these. But who are these people that walk around these small villages in Burgundy? I mean, who are standout personalities for you? Everybody stands out in certain, in different ways. For example, Fred Meunier, who's uh, somebody I, I admire extraordinarily, is, I, I would say, a very thoughtful person. Um, um, you could say intellectual and has uh, uh, fascinating interests. So we, we sometimes end up having conversations about things that are uh, absolutely nothing to do with wine, whether it be music or writing or uh, uh, literature or uh, uh, flying. He's a, he's a pilot as well. And um, people like Michel Lafarge. Michel Lafarge is sort of a father figure to me, certainly a mentor to mom. And probably one of the people who has the most, how, how, how should I say, balanced uh, 
extraordinarily thoughtful uh, uh, way of seeing life and, and different relationships. And is um, someone who's taught me to be, um, or that I look to um, um, for being a little bit more moderate than I might be sometimes. <laughs> Nico Rossignol loves motorcycles, for example. So every once in a while, I, I, uh, I have a little conversation about that with him. And he's somebody who's extraordinarily vital. Uh, Virgil Ligné-Michelot, who's uh, one of my favorite wine uh, growers right now, is a good friend. And, and we, uh, we have meals together. And um, he's always talking about hunting because he's really into hunting. And he's one of those people who... Uh, uh, is very high up in the hunting societies and takes care of uh, the protection of animals and so on and so forth and making sure that quotas are respected and so on. So it's uh, it's fascinating. How how shall I say? I mean, it's it, it's um it. Thankfully, there's other things to talk about than just wine with uh, with a lot of my uh, uh, people who I work with who have become friends. And we don't. We have a great bottle, but it's not all about the bottle. It's uh, it's about the friendship. It's about uh, talking to each other. It's about talking about uh, kids going through college or what's their next move or art. And uh, and I think uh, I think wine is a marvelous way to bring us together, uh, but doesn't necessarily have to be the only focus. It would seem to be the case that the farm that your parents bought has become, uh, in a way, a kind of uh, a salon for those kind of conversations where people come together from different countries and, and maybe they talk about wine over dinner, but maybe they talk about life over dinner. Very much so. Dinner parties at, at the house are <laughs> um, quite famous, I must say. Um, we we try to have, you know, really relaxed time and uh, we it's natural for us. I remember when I was a kid uh, and mom was doing this very early on and I must have been 11 or 12 or something like that. And mom would come up to our room and say, Okay, Peter and Paul, it's time to turn on the charm. Come on down. <laughs> and uh, we'd come on down and uh, uh, be part of the dinners. And uh, it's still the same today. We, 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 we've been receiving for so long um, that it's sort of second nature. And, uh, and we love it uh, because it's, it's really, it's probably one of the best times uh, for us in the business. Have estates that you represent that are not just in Burgundy. You have quite the portfolio of champagne producers. You have some some new Loire properties. Where else has the company taken you and your travels and the estates you represent? Well, again, I want to preface this by saying that Mom started out by having uh, uh, one of the best domains she could ever find um, of each appellation in France. And as she likes to put it, um, in one of my first lists, I had seven Côte du Rhône villages from the different Côte du Rhône village appellations, but I only sold one. This was 35 years ago, might have been a little bit before its time. Uh, so what we're doing now is um, we, we, we sort of um, came back with focus to Burgundy and then Champagne. And then uh, now we're re-expanding sourcing and, and the, the areas we're working with. The Loire Valley is one of them. Uh, Alsace, we, we've just picked up uh, Marcel Dice for part of the country. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It's, they're extraordinary wines and extraordinarily interesting people as well. L'Isère, which is a, a, a small IGP, which is a, sort of at the foot of the Bouget and the Savoie, which is almost unknown. There's only 300 hectares of commercially viable uh, plantation down there. 
Languedoc-Roussillon as well. So I try to travel at least one year out of two to each one of these regions to stay in touch with the growers, to really see what they're doing, how it's evolving, to go and visit every vineyard. I also um, work with the geologists to uh, understand those regions and how the geology can influence the, uh, uh, the winemaking. And um, it's a discovery process for me every, every moment, which really keeps it interesting. My brother is uh, one of the people, um, uh, well, basically he's the point person for sourcing, and he's extraordinarily good at that. But mom has, uh, as of recently, um, decided to go back out there and, uh, and start sourcing again. So it's a um, mother-son sort of team who are going and finding new things for us to represent. And it's, it's fascinating. It's great. I'm so happy to have some other stuff to sell. And uh, uh, hopefully the market will recognize that we source the same way we've sourced uh, up till now. And our motto is actually, uh, we don't sell what we don't drink. So um, we're not just sourcing appellations. We're sourcing wines that we really enjoy and, and think are representative of the terroir or have something so unique that uh, they stand out in a sense. But what about Peter? I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about your mom and she deserves that acclaim for what she did, what she built, the markets that she created, the relationships that she developed, the the lineage that she's been able to have uh, passed down in families through financial support, which I've witnessed. I mean, I've witnessed uh, Sylvain Cattiard being very thankful that he can pass it on to his son now and have Sebastian make the wines. And that happens through financial success of sales. You know, here's a guy who worked with a very small, small seller, and now it's a bigger seller, and he was able to do that because money came in. You know, that that seems to not be a small thing for him, uh, and understandably so. But it was his retirement party today, and Mom just came back from the lunch uh, oh, okay. a, a couple of hours ago, so it's very apropos. Because, yeah, I mean, it is a, a generational change. And, Absolutely. And we saw, you know, he's talked about, you know, being able to use more space and more equipment to make better wines and how originally they were tougher and 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 a different kind of wine than he originally wanted to make because he didn't have the space to make the wines that he really wanted to make and now because of financial uh stability he's been able to build that space and so he feels he's passing on something through the sales and so all of that is very real but what about the peter part i mean can i just say something addressing sure what you just said Mom came into the business at the very, very early time where uh, domains started really bottling, except for maybe 50 domains that had bottled pri- uh, previously under their own labels. And she was one of the impulses uh, for people to be able to bottle, sell their wine, make a little bit of money, reinvest in the wineries. And wineries have progressively gotten better and better because of that. And uh, and she was truly, I can truly credit her with being one of the very first few to do that. And certainly one of the very uh, first women. I, I believe uh, Martine also started just about at her time. So I'm super proud of being in that lineage. But uh, for me, I was immediately put on the American market and sort of started the first two, three years traveling Mom would travel and hit part of the market. I would travel and would hit part of the market. 
and um, I'm very much the American representative of um, of uh, selection, Becky Wasserman, and my brother is as well on the West Coast. The last three years, he's integrated the uh, the company. What I absolutely adore about my job is that I get to see these new generations of uh, wine interested younger people whether they be uh, psalms or retailers, uh, in or not in education uh, for, for becoming psalms and so on. And there's this thirst for information and knowledge, which keeps me, first of all, on my toes. Uh, I keep studying all the time to be able to answer their questions properly and, uh, and keeps me excited to, to be in the market. And I've forged some really, really good friendships um, with various people in the, in the business here. And, um, Actually, most of my friends uh, are are from the business here. And you're uh, a little bit different than a lot of people who are in the business because you don't just work with one distributor. You work with a few, many eggs in different baskets, that sort of thing. And so I see you at a lot of different tastings where, you know, you'll have a portion of your portfolio with Wildman. You have a portion of your portfolio with Martin Scott. You have a portion of your portfolio with Paul Mall. Um, you know, as you encounter different aspects of, of the wine business, what is striking you today? As Burgundy has kind of assumed this, uh, you know, blue chip role as prices have escalated, what do you see at the table and what are you concerned about or what are you excited about? I'm very thankful that Burgundy has become uh, a go-to region and and a collectible region in a sense. It it was more difficult when I started to, uh, to sell through everything we were allocated partially due to prices, partially due to uh, um, the interest that was more on Bordeaux at the time. So that's a fascinating change and and a great change. The only thing I, I could l- lament is not having enough Burgundy to sell, actually. The allocations are getting uh, smaller as their world market is growing. And obviously, they take a little bit from the markets that were traditionally the larger markets to uh, to then start serving other countries. So that's that's one uh, thing that I've seen. The the thing that's happening right now, uh, which I have been trying to get started and now uh, seems to be taking on, is creating education opportunities where we're we're actually doing master classes or uh, terroir tastings or things like that, where I can really really sit down with people and uh, and and get. A little further in depth than just behind a table when you have five people in front of you that's very hard to uh, actually describe a particular vineyard or another or a particular winemaking technique or another uh, so that i'm super thankful for i do see slightly different crowds at each one of these distributors which is uh, also um, also interesting because you can see how uh, certain buyers gravitate towards a certain uh, uh, distributor culture uh, if you wish so that's that's great because it, 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 I get to see the market as a whole, as opposed to a very small sliver of the uh, of the market, uh, and I get to meet uh, people wide and far. Um, we we have a very different model than a lot of people because we do sell uh, through different importers in the same state. I don't think anybody would care or could carry the amount of domains that we actually represent. We represent a little over a hundred domains. And uh, that would be financially huge for somebody to uh, to actually put all their eggs in one basket. They need to source some on their own. They need to source from different different selectors like us. So that model is the one we're comfortable with and we're used to working with. To some people, it seems crazy 
because it's uh, really a lot of minutia of, of who gets what, where, when, and how. And also we work with uh, big states, we work with tiny states, we work with very different ways in different states. I mean, for example, in uh, in Texas, we're with one distributor and they, they get the, the core of our portfolio that we have for Texas, as well in Chicago. But in New York, we're with uh, five different distributors. So it's just a different way of working, I guess. What is the outlook for Burgundy across the United States? Is it a bit different in San Francisco than New York? Is it a bit different in Dallas than New York? Is it a bit different a smaller state versus a bigger state? Is it because of regulation in terms of distribution, or is it because of customer interest or both? The blue chips are still as sought after in every single state, to a lesser degree in a state that can't sell as much, to a larger degree in a state that can uh, uh, really move some wine. What's interesting is where they defer in terms of the less known estates and, and the up-and-coming winemakers. Some states are really focusing on that. One, because the price points are, are lower, for sure. The quality is there, but they're not afraid of doing the work to uh, make these domains better known and better distributed. Yes, Dallas, Dallas, Houston, Austin is extraordinarily different from New York. In New York, you probably have absolutely every single top portfolio is represented here. So it's a market that has an extraordinary amount of choice. Uh, Texas is maybe not quite as well represented down there. Oregon, for example, and, and, and Washington are bottle states. So when I go out with a, with a rep, I'm selling bottles. I'm not selling cases. A good day is a really, really, really good day is when I've sold 10 cases, as opposed to uh, maybe 50 in New York. So, so the dynamics are, are quite different. One of the things that I am working on and, and really, really interested in is starting to source from uh, different areas in Burgundy and the less expensive areas like the Northern Burgundy Appalachians that just uh, came into being uh, in 1995. Tonnerre would be one of them. Irancy uh, uh, would be another one of them. Some of those Appalachians are, are fascinating. The wines that are being made are beautiful. Uh, the price points are, are much less expensive than Côte d'Or. The other area I absolutely adore working with is the Maconnais, because it is uh, it is a really a tailwall driven uh, uh, Appalachian and uh, or Appalachian zone, and uh, there's some extraordinary wines that are coming out of there. So maybe working the less expensive Burgundies is really exciting for me right now. Uh, Aligoté and Pastugan have uh, enjoyed a tremendous revival with the younger crowd of, of sommeliers and, and retailers and uh, are no longer dismissed as they were with the previous generation. And, you know, they might have been dismissed at the time because uh, uh, basically if they went to the main appellations like Puligny-Morachet or, or Meursault or uh, uh, Chassagne, they got the price points that they needed, so they really didn't need to look at uh, Aligoté and Pastugan. So that might have been a reason at the time. But today, with the uh, prices that the other appellations fetch, a really good Aligoté, like uh, the Raisin Doré from Lafarge, is a sought-after wine and, and, and still within a reasonable price point. It seems to me that Burgundy is unique and amongst wine regions in that it has appeal both for serious financial investment from collectors and also from the young sommelier wine geek set at the same time. 
Whereas a lot of other regions have one or the other. You know, you don't see a lot of blue chip investors being like, Norello Mascalese, let me get some. But, you know, some <laughs> are all about it. Same thing with the Jira. Or you might see the opposite in Bordeaux, where you see a lot of more of the collector set interested, but you know, you see very little interest from from the younger sommiers does that allow you to sell all sorts of faucets of different kinds of burgundy to different audiences absolutely let's talk a little bit about collectors because i think there's a an interesting thing happening with collectors the previous generation of collectors and some of them have absolutely extraordinary sellers and when i mean extraordinary sellers we're talking you know well over twenty thousand bottles of uh, just wines that are are, are the, the pinnacle of what can be produced uh, in the region are more and more relying on what they already have in the cellar and drinking and not purchasing as much. This has permitted some of the the aspiring collectors to uh, move in to that particular niche and start getting some wines. But there's a new type of collector. Um, Okay, let's not call them collectors. Drinkers uh, who are building a cellar for drinking. And they're not necessarily going after blue chips. They're going after things that have an ability to age long-term, some medium-term, and some immediate um, uh, drinking. And they are much more about what's appropriate to drink when, rather than I've got the label and my wine is bigger than yours. It's, it's, they're, they're becoming what I had grown up with, people that had cellars that I grew up with, they had sellers that had all of that in them and and they had some stuff to drink every day they had some uh, uh, you know when you get back home and you want a glass of chard or you want a glass of pinot and you don't want to wrap your head around it and it's not a dissertation and you just want a good glass of chilled wine and you drink it so you know for example the the category bourgogne rouge or bourgogne blanc or if you can afford it a village level wine would be fine for that purpose and then um, they're constituting sellers that are meant to be drunk and i have a feeling that they're also constituting sellers that are meant to be passed on not as a collectible not as an asset but as something for the next generation to drink and that's that's a big 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 change uh, in the collector in the collector world um Sommeliers, uh, geeky sommeliers. Well, you have two kinds of sommeliers, in my opinion. You've got the sommeliers who only put blue chips on their uh, on their labels, um, on their uh, uh, lists, and uh, blue chips will always sell because uh, they're recognized. They've been at the top of uh, the ratings for you know twenty five, thirty years, so they're a relatively safe and secure way to build a list. And then there's uh, some sommeliers who are not afraid of a hand sell, who are going for much lesser known uh, domains. The quality is there, undeniably, but um, it's just not a recognizable. Uh, it's just not a recognizable domain. That being said, those people who are doing that type of seller are probably selling to a public that doesn't know the blue chips, or hasn't learned about the blue chips. So it might be an easier sell for them because they have this whole new generation of drinkers that aren't necessarily um, um, as red on what has been blue chip for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, And the ones that are putting together sellers that are all blue chip are used to selling to that crowd. They know their customer base very well. They know that they have enough money to spend on those types of bottles. So they're also catering to their customers and tailoring, uh, uh, tailoring their list to their customers. And both... Both types of lists are, are 
really, uh, really good and, and I think deserve to exist side by side. You know, you, you spoke about drinking, wine for drinking. And one of the things that strikes me is that when I go to Burgundy, people drink Burgundy with Burgundian food. The, mm-hmm. the traditional classics of the region. Mm-hmm. When, when I'm in New York, what I see often is that people drink Burgundy as something that can go with any kind of food. Mm-hmm. As kind of like a, something that works as a bridge. Whether mm-hmm. the, you know, more acid, lighter flavors, a little bit more driven, less heavy, can go with, hey, maybe I'm going to have tacos. Maybe I'm going to have some sort of Asian cuisine. Uh, maybe it'll be sushi. Uh, whereas I don't see that so much in, in Burgundy itself. Are people encountering the wines differently based on the local cuisines? First of all, let me qualify Burgundy. Burgundy is a a region with a uh, a deep food culture that's Burgundian. Same thing happens in the Piedmont. Uh, When when you go to restaurant after restaurant after restaurant in the Piedmont or Burgundy, you have the same um, uh, dishes that are offered up as the traditional dishes. So, But, and I would just say, no one thinks of Barolo as, like, flexible. No one's like, on this over okay. here, people aren't like, you could have Barolo with anything. You oh know, people God. aren't having Barolo with sushi. People aren't having well, Barolo I, with Chinese. I don't know what's wrong with them. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know what's wrong. I think that some Barolos are extraordinarily flexible. And I enjoy drinking Barolos, by the way, with my Barolo peeps in, in various occasions and which will range from fish through sashimi um, all the way to uh, Burgundian dishes or or Barolo, uh, uh, Piemontese dishes. Yes, Burgundy is drunk far and wide um, in, in the United States and uh, with many different cuisines. And I think that Burgundy is uh, one of those wines that permits you to pair with many different cuisines. The only thing I would maybe shy away from at least for the Cote d'Or and Chablis, and maybe even the, the Cote Chalonnaise, would be anything that has any type of heat on it. Cayenne, um, uh, a chili pepper, particularly hot chili pepper, because I find that clashes and it makes the acid come out shrill and, um, and doesn't really integrate very well. One of my very favorite pairings with uh, Burgundy, red Burgundy, is sashimi. I've had more extraordinary marriages with sashimi than with any other type of food. And it was a uh, chef from D.C. called Daisuke. Um, his restaurant is Sushiko, um, who used to come to, uh, to Burgundy to our house and organize a lunch um, once a year and fly people. I mean, there were people that were, would fly in from across the world because basically in D.C. is a, a a diplomacy capital. So we really had, you know, ambassadors and things like that fly in to have this one meal. And he would ask five winemakers to offer up one bottle, I mean, one uh, uh, one wine, five bottles, or five or six, depending on how many people we, we had seated. And he would pair on the day. Now his team and he had gone and sourced for two weeks in Europe prior to coming there. So it was all fresh uh, uh, and and beautiful stuff sourced from around Europe. And he would pair on the day. The pairings were brilliant. I remember the first time I had one of those meals, I came into it dragging my feet because I really didn't particularly like uh, pinot and fish. And I sat down and I was just amazed with one dish after the other, simply amazed. And it's a pairing that's not what I would call a Western pairing. There's a mini clash at first because the tannin clashes uh, uh, clashes against the fish. 
And then as soon as that clash is over, it really grows into something extraordinary and that really marries. As Daisuke put it, he said, Japanese cuisine is like Pinot Noir you, and is related to Ikebana. You take an extraordinarily beautiful branch that has flowers on it and you eliminate one or two bits to just retain the essence of that branch and take away anything that would detract you from seeing the beauty of that branch. And he says that Japanese cuisine and Pinot Noir are like that. You do away with any artifice to leave something which is as pure as possible and as unadulterated as possible. And therefore, because it's done in the same spirit, it should match, and it did. It's one thing that has come up here, and it tends to come up in just about any uh, conversation about Pinot Noir, is, is purity of fruit. Is that what customers are so drawn to with Burgundy, amongst the other things that make it wonderful, such as aroma and nice acidity? But is the purity of fruit in Pinot something that offers almost kind of an ur quality of fruit that uh, seems to be drawing so many people to it? That's what a lot of people say, uh, that the, the, the purity of the wines uh, is what attracts them to the wines. Obviously, acid's another point. But um, I think, and I'll go back to Daisuke, Pinot has umami. And one is attracted to umami, <laughs> very simply put, uh, gustatively uh, attracted to umami. And what's one of the most fascinating things for people when they, when they get around to experiencing this, it's not right away generally, is the transformational ability of Pinot uh, in a glass. Uh, I mean, Pinot will go from something that'll be rather restrained and uh, just give you the idea of what it's going to be when you start uh, swirling it in your glass at first. And maybe an hour later, an hour and a half later, this has evolved into an extraordinary explosion of uh, aromas and a beautiful layering on the mid-palate. And of course, length. I, I'm probably biased. But um, I find that both white burgundy and red burgundy are amongst the lengthiest wines I've, I've tasted. Some Grunewaldliners and Rieslings come to mind as well. But in sheer length, I think uh, Pinot and, and Chardonnay uh, from Burgundy can, can really do the trick. You know, one of the things that is interesting about wine is that, you know, we have so few ways to describe it. But it seems like as different wines become popular, different words get more into use are, are do we have the proper vocabulary to understand all iterations i mean sometimes i feel like part of the reason a certain wine isn't well regarded in the market is because it, it can't be talked about thoroughly in a way that communicates what it is or, or have you seen more adjectives come into use over say the last 10 or 15 years that weren't previously very popular ways to describe a wine yeah i hate descriptors mm -hmm. um i absolutely board descriptors because when um, uh, a person who describes wine whether they be a writer or not um, at first in a barrel tasting they're there uh, uh, red berries uh, uh, cassis uh, uh, raspberry this and that and the other thing well from my experience tasting five six seven eight nine ten times at the same cellar I never ever have those aromas twice repeated I might have an idea uh, a certain grouping of, of particular uh, 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 flavor descriptors. I think that they're fleeting, and they're certainly fleeting when the wine is in the glass over a couple of hours. And I think they're totally inadequate language to speak about wine. I think that structure 
is um, something that changes less in a glass and something that you can have a more consistent view of wine. At least I, I taste structure rather than fruit aromas and so on. And hence the way I speak about wine is often in a structuralist way. That being said, you have to develop your own language, the one that you feel comfortable because your olfactive memory, which is uh, one of the strongest uh, memories you can have and comes from childhood, are your own. And you don't associate them with, uh, uh, you, you don't associate them anywhere like anybody else. It's really what, what you grew up with and what your baggage is, so to speak. So it's super important to develop your own comfortable way to talk about something. And if somebody has a question, then try to explain what you, what you mean in that, um, in that respect. Are some wines not as popular when they're released uh, as others because we have trouble describing them? I think that the wines that are more popular, at least in terms of sales, are the wines that uh, express fruit in a more forceful manner than the wines that express structure in a forceful manner. And um, I think people are attracted to that fresh fruit, fresh fruit component in wine. And hence, there's some wines that'll sit on the shelves for uh, for ages and don't really come into their own until maybe five, six, seven, ten years later. And generally speaking, only with connoisseurs. Another anecdote. Um, I, I just did a uh, four-day seminar. I conducted a four-day seminar on the wine, wines of Nuit Saint-Georges for a small group, uh, about 10 people. It was a symposium that we did in Burgundy. And it was an extraordinary rediscovery of an appellation that's been in the doldrums for the last 25 years. I mean, the wines are exquisitely rich. I don't think I know of another appellation that has as much uh, uh, richness uh, on the mid-palate as, uh, as Nuit Saint-Georges. And they do definitely remind me of Barolos. Um, specifically, they remind me of, uh, of Castiglion Faletto. And uh, just extraordinary. But they have structure. And they have structure in the same way a Barolo would have structure. So um, there's this fear of structure uh, with Burgundies. Uh, Burgundies are not supposed to have uh, uh, bigger tannins and so on. And I disagree. I totally disagree. There's some Burgundies that do have tannin and they should have tannin and it's part and parcel of their soul. You pair them differently. You serve them at different times. Uh, take, for example, a Boeuf Bourguignon or a Cocovin, which is very traditional French uh, Burgundian, Burgundian fare, rich uh, 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 concentrated wine sauces. Well, when you have something that rich, you need something with tannin. And um, uh, a Nuit Saint-Georges goes extraordinarily well. So so um, I, I think that people need to go and take a second look at those wines that might not be the ones that spoke to them at first. What happens in, uh, in uh, pro tastings when I'm there, people glance over those wines, then they come back and they'll taste the wine they're thinking about buying, but generally it's the fruit-driven one. And I keep telling them, well, try this one again, now that you've tasted around the room. And then taste it again and go like, oh, I didn't perceive this at all like I'm perceiving it now. Well, very simply put, your mouth is now coated with tannins. And you come back and you taste that wine and the tannin doesn't seem that aggressive anymore. And uh, you, can, you, can definitely, uh, you can definitely appreciate it in a different way. What's going on with Primox? 
what what's your theory on how it's arisen? How has it changed Burgundy? How has it changed the market for Burgundy? Premox was a real problem in Burgundy. That's a number one statement I'll make. Um, it hit a, a, a great number of domains, and it didn't hit in the same way uh, uh, domains. I mean, literally in a case, you might have four Premox bottles, six good ones, uh, you know, uh, eight good ones, or, or the contrary, and you really can't tell from one bottle to the next. There's several different schools of thought or, or ideas that uh, might have contributed to, uh, to Premox. Um, being a problem in Burgundy, let's start with the vineyards. A uh, lack of nitrate and potassium in certain white wine uh, vineyards was brought up as being a potential problem. The uh, lowering of sulfurs in the early 90s, and literally in 95, 96, well, actually Premox really started in 96, we had gotten to some of the lowest sulfur use in uh, the history of, 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 uh, uh, or the recent history of making Burgundy. It was the Parker years, and there was a lot of batonnage going on, which is stirring of the lees. And this is done to fatten up the wines. And um, obviously, it's an oxidative process because you open the bung, and you put a stick in, in and you stir the lees, and of course, it oxygenates the wines uh, to a certain degree. One still uses batonnage, for example, when you have a slightly reduced barrel to oxygenate it up and uh, introduce oxygen and counteract uh, reductiveness. The other thing um, that, that came to light is that uh, we weren't producing Burgundy in the same way as uh, white Burgundy in the same way as we were in, in the past, in the years that weren't uh, Primox. Better, we had quote-unquote better uh, pneumatic presses. These presses protected the juice quite a bit, very much like Pinot Noir. And... Um, uh, it didn't really allow the juice to flash oxidize or oxidize for a few hours and then come back from that oxidation. So some people think that you need that oxidation. It weren't very good. It might have been funky, so on. So uh, there was a, a fear of working with the bigger lees, whereas previously in the previous generations they had worked with the bigger lees. So that too was a uh, an issue. Uh, corks, of course. Um, at the time, we had a changeover from a particular type of wash of the corks uh, to peroxide, and peroxide is an oxidating agent. The other thing that had happened is we just were getting onto the market corks that had been grown in a seven-year cycle as opposed to the 15-year cycle that they had before and were uh, irrigated, hence giving way to slightly less dense corks. And of course, uh, the international market having risen up, the demand for very high-end corks was uh, was huge everywhere in the world, and hence Burgundy might not have had a uh, first pick, or in some cases, some of the domains might not have been able to afford uh, the first pick of cork. So that was also a, a potential problem. So all of these things sort of combine in a perfect storm to uh, create the Premox problem. But I've got to say, Premox was discovered in Australia. There's definitely cases of Premox in Germany. There's definitely cases of Premox in uh, Austria. There's cases of Premox in, uh, in Bordeaux and, and every white producing region in the world. And when I first came to retail 15 years ago, my boss said, you've got to sell all your California whites before they're three years old because they don't age. What did they do? They premoxed and um, uh, prematurely oxidized. Um, so premox is not a problem. It's not a new problem. 
It's a problem that has uh, quite a bit of history. Why is it focus, focusing on Burgundy? Because Burgundies are supposed to age, and hence, uh, and they're expensive. So you lay them down, and obviously, you know, uh, the whole focus is on the expensive wine that you uh, need to lay down in order to enjoy, and uh, obviously a lot of people are coming up with Primox. I have not encountered as much Primox as is suggested on the uh, on various boards and, and uh, in, in various social media. I can't really tell you why, other than I've just not experienced it as much as it's uh, suggested that it does happen. And I think there's a lot of of uh, people who taste something that they're not familiar with in a wine and declare it as Primox because it's easy to declare it as Primox or corked. And uh, I've seen people come up to me and say, the cork is wet, it's Primoxed. They haven't even tasted the wine. So I think there's a lot of misdiagnosed um, um, uh, premature oxidation, and that adds to the uh, controversy, so to speak. We did two white wine symposiums in the last two, three years. One was on my own. I was hosting the symposium. We served 210 wines, uh, I believe 210, yeah. And uh, we did not have a single bottle of Primox. I actually had, and I, and I served specifically the years 96, 97, 98, 99, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, I had to go down into the cellar and get a Primox bottle because we had a couple of cases of Primox bottles to illustrate Primox. Uh, and then in the second symposium, which was with Alan Meadows, uh, we only had three bottles of premature oxidative wines, and they were all 1999s. The winemaker was present. He talked about it with no problems whatsoever. He was totally open about it, and he said, yeah, I had major problems in that year, and uh, one should expect to find uh, uh, premature oxidative wines uh, uh, at that time. And he says, I can't explain it. Now, there's a lot of research going on in Burgundy, UC Davis, and, and quite a few other uh, uh, universities that uh, that 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 do research on wine, and we still haven't come up with a satisfactory explanation, nor have we come up with a satisfactory cure. And there is no magic bullet to cure this or to uh, ensure that nothing uh, will ever happen with your wine. It's still a it's still a, a a risk when you when you purchase. But you know, it took time to discover uh, a lot of things about cancer. You know. And that's some some research that has some major money in it. So we're still looking, and there's still some occurrences of Premox. Um, not everything. A lot of people confuse reduction for Premox, by the way. Um, and those are two very different things. And those are two very different things, but when you're not trained, the They both the seem wines, annoying, the, the, in a way. <laughs> the, the wine comes across as wrong. Right, right. So if the they buzzword both, they both seem wrong today is Premox, it's... In a weird way, almost fair that they use that to describe that there's a problem in the wine. It's infuriating and frustrating, but it's, you know, what else? You know, they're they're not classically trained. That being said, I've seen very little Premox after uh, 2002. I've not seen a single bottle of Premox in 2003. 05, 04, there was a reduction problem, which was uh, due to the fact that they had sulfided with powder sulfur, uh, the grapes right before the grapes grow big enough to, to close the bunch. And it was sulfur that wasn't accounted for 
in the vinification. So it was a sulfite-induced uh, uh, reduction. And then, uh, then after that, it's just very rare occurrences. Um, a little known fact is uh, we were the very first company in the world to bring a lawsuit against um, uh, a winery for um, all the wines being premoxed after having had them shipped uh, to the United States, which we won. Um, it took us three three years to win, but uh, I think that, that was the very first on record uh, lawsuit about premox. Has global warming changed the situation in Burgundy? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know if I should call it global warming or not because we have cycles and they do exist, and uh, uh, they're very well recorded in terms of wine because um, you can see in the literature uh, uh, going back going back to the uh, 16th century that there's periods that are more or less warm and so on. And when I was a kid, for example, the 1970s were extraordinarily cold. Uh, with the exception of 1976, which was a heat wave. So, yes, what has it changed? The, the uh, dates of harvest are earlier and earlier and earlier, but also the start of uh, uh, bud break is earlier as well. So there's a shift in the uh, there's a, a, a shift in the grow season, not the length of the grow season, but the uh, the uh, uh, grow season seems to be earlier. Um, higher alcohol because there's quite a bit of sun. Other than that, the, the winemaking techniques are adaptive, so uh, uh, they, they really, really adapt with every different situation you have every year. And a lot of these kids who are making wines these days, and I call them kids because I'm now 50, <laughs> but um, have interned in New Zealand and Australia and California and so on and so forth. So they're equipped with uh, um, uh, with the ability to deal with uh, with a hotter vintage or, or or something like that, and 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 hence I think they approach the uh, the winemaking uh, with a, a wider uh, knowledge base. So I haven't seen huge changes. One thing I've heard growers talk about quite a bit is nematodes. Is that an issue uh, that's increasing or decreasing, or is it a problem? It's increasing, and since uh, there's a big uh, pendulum swing towards uh, organic and biodynamic, uh, there's really no uh, no answer uh, to it uh, at the moment because we really don't have the tools to fight against it. And what is it exactly? A nematode? Yes, sir. Oh, it's just a little insect that pricks the uh, pricks the vine and uh, uh, essentially makes it die. <laughs> makes it die. Um, and um, la flavescence dorée, which is another uh, little winged insect that, that does the same thing. It's, um, it's coming up from the south of France, and they have a big problem. They've had a, a, a historical problem with that for a long, long time. So um, I don't have really any answers as to how they're going to deal with it, except that uh, for the moment the uh, percentage um, is still livable, so to speak. Now, uh, uh, I'll give you the solution of uh, the Lafarges for a certain number of bugs in the, uh, uh, in the vineyards. Um, they have a chicken coop on wheels, and they take their little chicken coop on wheels to various vineyards and, you know, in the morning, and these 11 or 12 chickens and one rooster uh, uh, fan out and eat as many bugs as possible and um, gorge on them, and uh, then... You know, uh, uh, Frederick calls them back to the uh, to the chicken coop. They come 
running back to the chicken coop, all file in, and then he takes him on to the next vineyard. And uh, he says that he gets a um, 50% reduction uh, in um, a 50% reduction in uh, bugs in in his vines by doing that. So that's one solution. And by the way, he says uh, they're they're really really nice, and they actually pay rent through eggs. <laughs> they go on vacation. Uh, uh, they go on vacation at a certain moment when the uh, grapes turn red. Uh, we call that the veraison. And they go on vacation to a cousin's house. So uh, they get some time off during the year. We've seen a lot of emphasis amongst a number of notable growers in terms of organics and biodynamics in Burgundy. Uh, I haven't seen so much natural wine, uh, with the exception of Pacolet and Pierre Roque and a little bit of others. What do you attribute that to? And what do you think about natural wine as something that might work in Burgundy or not? It's a good question. I have a number of domains we work with who are conducting tests at the moment, and they they uh, they're very cautious in in the way they do it, and they want to see if they've got uh, they want to see if they've got problems doing it, and if the wine is stable, and if it ages according to what they think it should age like. Um, it's a uh, it's a difficult path to go down uh, natural wine, and there's two. Um, how shall I say? In my opinion, there's two uh, uh, places it comes from. There's the there's the people who go to natural wine after having a very classic upbringing or, or education in wine, and they know what they're doing, and they know how to keep a cellar clean, and they still do analyses and, and really want to know if it's gone 100% through mallow and uh, malolactic fermentation and so on and so forth. And uh, there's the other school which comes to winemaking saying, I don't want to go to school to do winemaking. And they don't know what the potential problems are, so they don't recognize them when they're in the bottle. I think that, uh, I think that with time, the natural winemakers that are going to stand out are the better ones. Not necessarily the better schooled ones, but I say the ones that, that produces, produce wines that have something to say about terroir. It is a stylistic choice, so you are going to get some markers on, on natural wines. And uh, it's an interesting place for winemaking to go. The problem I have with natural wine is that it's a political statement right now. I don't drink politics. I drink wine. And uh, I'm not a bad person for drinking a wine that's uh, been done in a lutraisonné or just biodynamic, uh, uh, di biodynamic way. Nor am I against sulfites at all. Uh, if it helps stabilize the wine, as long as it's used cautiously and in, in, in small doses, I have I have no problem with that. The one thing I do have a problem is when somebody who represents natural wines tells me, uh, uh, you don't know, uh, our wines are in evolutions. Yours aren't. And I look at them and I go like, you are so full of bullshit. Our wines evolve tremendously. And uh, we've got countless generations that can speak to that, um, that our wines actually do evolve, even though they were made unnaturally. Arf, arf. And I wonder if we could step out of Burgundy for a minute to talk about champagne and disgorgement dates. It's, oh, yes. <laughs> it seems to have been a topic that came up a bit a bit ago as, as people are labeling more and being more kind of transparent from the grower side about the fact that there's different bottlings in the market at, at a given time of what otherwise on the front label might look like the same wine. How does that present 
an issue or an opportunity for you in the market? What is the customer response and what is the critical response? The critics are the drivers behind asking for disgorgement date. That's that's the number one uh, uh, the number one thing that you need to know. I don't hear the public coming up to me and say, "Where's the disgorgement date?" I do hear some professionals now coming up to me and saying, "Where's the disgorgement date?" But let me ask you a question. This wine was disgorged on September 2012. Does that give you any indication of quality? Does that give you any indication of anything other than the month that wine was disgorged in? To me, it doesn't give me any information taken in a vacuum. Uh, it makes no sense. I was told by some journalists that the one qualitative issue here is to find out if a retailer uh, has had it on his shelf for a while or not to see if the champagne was fresh. And my answer to that is I sell early disgorged late release wines, so that would tell you absolutely nothing unless I specify on the label that this was disgorged in such and such a year and released in such and such a year. The second thing, I think it's mainly to avoid having to re review twice the same bottle. Now, um, and that's a journalistic uh, problem and not a qualitative issue for, for customers. Now, disgorgement date can be a qualitative statement if it's accompanied with a number of other things. First of all, if it's accompanied with times on the lease. So let's say that you have a wine that's been three years on the lease and got disgorged. That gives you a qualitative, uh, a qualitative bit of information. The other thing that I think should be on, on the label, and which we're now putting on the labels, is dosage. And, uh, you know, whether it's five grams, six grams, seven grams, eight grams per liter, whatever it is, we're, we're now actually coming out and putting that. And also the blends. The one thing that uh, American legislation will not permit us to put is base wine and percentages of, uh, of reserve wines and how many reserve wines you have. In the, uh, They consider that that's vintaging a champagne. I, I really would like to put uh, what base wines and reserve wines are in a, in a bottle because I think that's also a great piece of information for both professionals as well as uh, consumers. What else to say about uh, disgorgement dates? Oh, yeah, there's very few journalists that would agree, and I've asked, to disgorge. Uh, I, have some, I have some domains that disgorge up to 20 times a year, and uh, they don't want to review 20 disgorgements, except it's done for Solos. So I do have a problem with uh, I do have a problem with the fact that it wouldn't be done for one of the domains I represent, but it would be done for another domain, which is rather famous. And uh, I would like to see every single disgorgement reviewed. Why is this important? Because when you disgorge at the uh, first uh, uh, first disgorgement um, in a lot has more dosage than the last disgorgement in a lot, which has less dosage. So. Of course, it changes the quality of the wine. Last but not least, I prefer my non-vintage uh, champagnes to be at least two to three years after disgorgement for the best balance. That's my preference. And of course, everybody's allowed their own preference. They might like much fresher champagne. Some people like champagne and tertiary aromas. I adore tertiary aromas in champagne, by the way. But um, uh, I think they're in their drinking window about 
three years after disgorgement. So in that respect, disgorgement day can be important if you want to seller it. As we've decided, as there seem to have been um, a consensus among consumers amongst, you know, hey, these are great champagne or these are great burgundy, has the market on the distributor importer side become more competitive as there's a, a finite amount and a market that so wants these these wines from these recognized greats? Have things gotten a little bit more heated or uh, a little bit more competitive than they were in the 70s uh, for some of these wines and to distribute them? Much more. I know several of our domains are, are courted uh, on a regular basis by other distributors, even if they're national with us and so on, because uh, they're recognized marquee uh, uh, labels. And uh, it would be a great coup to actually get something like that to uh, uh, enhance a Burgundy selection. But, um, for example, if you, if you take these four years, uh, 2010, 11, 12, and 13, there's less and less wine. So the competition is going to be much, much greater as we go into 2012 and 2013 uh, vintages, I'm talking. Obviously, the people who have supported the portfolios, and I'm talking at large and probably not just uh, for Selection Becky Wasserman, but I'm talking for a lot of our distributors, the people who have supported early on uh, certain domains will will get served first, simply put. And uh, we hope that we're going to get a bigger vintage and that we'll be able to serve a larger public. But we don't know. It's an agricultural product and we're, we're basically, uh, um, you know, we're at the mercy of the weather. Has that weather become a little bit more extreme in, in some of these rather kind of almost terrifying hailstorms recently? Or is that just, a, as we spoke about before, a cycle that comes and goes? Or is this becoming a, a bit more of a, a kind of a storm watcher environment where these things seem to be happening more often? I don't really know because we've only had really two years with uh, major, major storms. That being said, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I don't remember if it was 69 or 72, I'm not, I'm not sure, going to school or, or preschool or whatever uh, I was at. Um, or going to Bone, actually, going to Bone, um, uh, driving through Volney and having the same kind of torrential downpour in the streets that we're heading down to the main street that I saw uh, pictures of in the last hailstorm we had. I don't think we have enough uh, length of time to really say. It seems to be getting more violent, more erratic. That being said, we're a pinprick in terms of time. So uh, so I don't know. One of the things I noticed when I was on the Cote de Bone this year was that a number of growers had empty barrels, you know, standing vertically uh, because their production levels have been down over a couple of years. And then at the same time, it, it's usually uh, well known that uh, keeping barrels full keeps them better in better condition if they're full of liquid and the, the staves stay closer together and also there's less bacteriological issues or are we going to see future issues from these shortages in in wines that we don't even associate with these years because of barrel issues or because of tightened budgets around wineries that have to deal with less wine to sell and what are other issues that we may not even recognize about this shortage several issues uh, let's address the barrels first uh, you saw them at a very particular moment when they were being moved or ready to get moved to another seller and what they usually do is that they uh, mesh them. That means that they uh, burn a sulfur candle in there, and uh, that aseptizes the uh, uh, the barrel, and you can keep it without water for you know uh, maybe a month or so. 
and then it's going to be moved to another cellar, and more often than not, it's going to be filled with water. Uh, so uh, it, it'll get filled at some point in order to keep the, uh, the wood uh, gorged with water and tight. So I don't think you're going to see any problems uh, in terms of cleanliness of the barrels or anything like that. Uh, that'll, that'll be the issue. Now, one of the um, uh, issues I want to talk about is the price of burgundies and, and what makes the price of burgundy. Generally, in Burgundy, you've got very, very small domains. Uh, you're looking at an average of maybe seven to eight hectares. Uh, let's say 16, that's about 20 acres, roughly. And in order to make good wine, you need good equipment. And you need to be able to do uh, everything you have to do in terms of great viticulture. And you also need to be able to do to work very cleanly in the uh, winery. And, and that means equipment. And a lot of the uh, young producers who have taken over their parents' um, uh, their parents' um, uh, operations or grandparents' operations have come in immediately, having learned in school and wanting to get this piece of equipment, that piece of equipment, that piece of equipment. So they take on these huge loans in order to refurbish the winery to start their activity, and they haven't seen four or five vintages in a row with tiny production. So they're not they're 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 calculating their ability to pay back a bank loan on an average vintage. So they've got these huge, huge, huge bank loans. Let me give you an idea. A tractor, a good tractor, lightweight tractor uh, with proper equipment is going to run about 160,000 euros. That is a huge amount of money. I mean, we're talking the price of a Ferrari here uh, or more. And, and that can only be amortized um, over a number of years. And you automatically have to find a part of that investment in the price of the bottle. So for lack of a better uh, way to describe it, banks are pricing your wine uh, to a certain extent. The other thing is market draw. And as Burgundy becomes more and more popular, there's less and less. And of course, the, uh, uh, the market works in such a way that um, uh, prices go up. Um, I've, I've heard a hundred, more than a hundred times, a thousand times, uh, uh, people lamenting that they couldn't buy this or couldn't buy that um, anymore. And I look at them and I go like, well, we live in a capitalist country. We live in a capitalist hemisphere. Do you, would you rather live in a socialist hemisphere or communist hemisphere and have the prices dictated by, uh, by the regime? Um, and hence be able to get them? Or are you okay with domains making good? And then my second question is, what do you do for a living? Oh, you're a doctor or a lawyer or so on and so forth. How much do you charge? Well, why don't you charge the same that your parents charged? Uh, why don't you charge 50 bucks instead of 500 bucks an hour? So it's okay for you to make money, but not for the domain to make money nor any intermediary. It is what it is. Burgundy is a hot, hot item right now, and, and market pressure is going to drive the prices up. Low yields are going to drive the, uh, drive the price up. It's unfortunate, but that's we live in a, in a market-driven world, and uh, most of us would rather live in a market-driven world. Has it meant that certain people are, are not being exposed to the classics on that, uh, you know, because... We were just at our tasting, and some of the burgundy that sometimes is out wasn't out this year. And I've seen 
that's happened over a course of years that things you know there's less and less at all taste things of this or that as prices have gotten higher are are we going to see a younger generation that moves in a different direction because the prices are no longer making these wines available to the young tasters to try i'm, I'm talking about people in the trade right that is a big problem especially with the younger generation upcoming generation that's getting into the wine business and uh a lot of whom are actually decision makers and um, uh, green lighters for, for purchases. They don't necessarily have the same access to the type of classic wine that our, our uh, uh, previous generation peers have or had. And it's a problem. I, I try as much as possible to create opportunities, ed- educative opportunities where I bring out the great classics, so that um, uh, a number of younger younger professionals are exposed to them, do understand them, get a real chance to taste them, get a real chance for somebody to really uh, explain them to them. But um, it's it's already affecting the market because there's already a huge proportion of these younger professionals that are gravitating towards uh, more accessible. Uh, uh, in terms of price, more accessible regions. And uh, it used to be, uh, when I started out 15 years ago to work uh, work in the, in the business, a um, person would uh, do maybe some domestic wines, then would immediately go to Bordeaux, then from Bordeaux would go to Northern, uh, Southern Rhone, Chateauneuf-du-Pape, uh, maybe swing by Barolo, and then finally come to Burgundy. That was the, that was the route. Now what we're seeing is uh, we go to the Loire Valley, maybe uh, do a little passage by the Jura and the uh, uh, and the Savoie, some less expensive, uh, some less expensive regions in um, in Italy, and so on. So we're creating another cycle where Burgundy comes last, based on price and based on availability, tasting availability. I, I'm going to say this for, for everybody who's out there who's in, like, uh, uh, courses or, 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 you know, on the MS program or the uh, MW program. We're, we're, we love the opportunity to be able to uh, uh, sit down with a few of you and open some really classic bottles and, uh, and discuss them and discuss where they're coming from and, and what to look for in a great classic bottle. And um, we think it's extraordinarily important to uh, offer up that educational opportunity. You really said something very interesting earlier about 04 as a vintage and what happened with that. And then you talked about some of the short harvests, but I wonder if we could just run through some of the last vintages in Burgundy and, and you could sort of give us your thoughts and impressions on them, say maybe starting since 03, a little bit of a controversial Love vintage, 03. vintage in some term. I absolutely adore 03. Now, 03 is a total atypical vintage in Burgundy. Uh, if I remember correctly 1893 was the last time that we had a vintage uh, that was in august uh, and and this was the first of a series of vintages uh, that were um, that were picked in august it's a heat wave combined with the drought as opposed to 1976 or 1947 that were uh, that were heat waves um, uh, sorry 76 was a drought uh, 47 was a short heat wave so it produced wines of extraordinary concentration and an impression of sur maturity and big tannin, which at first came out as really, really plump, pruny, everything I personally dislike in a sur mature wine because I think that it masks terroir. 
And then this was one of the vintages that got me thinking. First of all, Michel Lafarge said, it's our generation's 1947. I'd tasted a few 1947s, and I think that they're quite extraordinary. So I said, ah, okay, Michel says this, I better lay some down. So I bought a number of cases for myself, and I laid them down. And then um, I said, well, what the hey, I'll, I'll buy some whites too. And everybody was saying, oh, God, you got to drink them up uh, uh, immediately. These are like beyond Californian and so on and so forth. What happened? Well, as the wine ages, it's losing that pruny, those pruny aromas. It's tightening up. We're starting to see structure come out. It's more and more terroir-driven. It's never going to be a classic Burgundy. Everybody should un understand that. It's it's curvy. It's gorgeous. Um, the it's, Kim Kardashian. Of for example, Kim <laughs> Kardashian. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It, it's it's marvelously exuberant. And it's going to age extraordinarily well, in my opinion, just because the tannins there in order to uh, uh, keep the wine and, uh, uh, and, and allow it to age. The whites are getting more and more delicious. It, it, it's amazing, actually. Uh, I never thought the whites would go in that direction, but they're, they're tightening up. And again, there's the salinity in the vintage, which is just a, a beautiful and counteracts that richness of fruit. They're by all means still, you know, a, a curvy wines as well, but um, but uh, are definitely nothing like we saw when they were released. It's a vintage that I that I'm that I'm looking forward to drink over many 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 years. Two thousand four, the meanie greenies, <laughs> the meanie greenies, as a lot of people call them on the boards and so on and so forth. There was a combination of two things. First of all, it we had um, a huge ladybug problem. And when I mean huge ladybug problem, under the tables of triage, uh, there were tons and tons and tons of ladybugs. These are ladybugs that have been released in the wheat fields of the north, uh, and they were Asian ladybugs. And they were there to uh, fight pucerons, which are little bugs. They made their way over to Burgundy. They obviously liked the sugar and the grapes and uh, landed all over the place, but they didn't land in every field. So not every field is marked by the ladybug problem. Ladybugs release a substance that combines with wine and, and creates a green type of uh, smell and taste, which is very characteristic. But not every vineyard has it. So uh, it's really from vineyard to vineyard to vineyard. But it does go across great growers to, uh, to lesser known growers. So it, is, it, is, it has marked the vintage, and I think that the vintage will stay marked by that. And there was, uh, to a certain extent, some um, uh, lack of maturation as well. So there might have been some of that that came from the fact the grapes were not fully mature or as mature as one would like them. Give it time. Um, I'm, I've, got, I've got a ton of O4s, actually, uh, in the cellar. I'm just waiting for them. Every once in a while, I pull a bottle and I check it out. And some have entirely resolved their uh, uh, their greenness. Uh, some some are still there. Uh, they do have a tint. Some people absolutely do not mind it, and some people absolutely uh, re react to it and and have a problem with it. And that's okay. You can uh, you can make a taste choice. This is what you what you're supposed to do when you. Uh, uh, when you drink uh, and or when you eat, you know you're you're supposed to have choices uh, on what you like or don't like. Two thousand five, heralded as the greatest greatest vintage uh, uh, of all times. Um, I was 
bothered by the fact that everybody had like already made a decision on O5s before they even tasted it. So I sold against it. Um, uh, I tried to uh, I tried to dissuade people <laughs> by 2005, which I didn't do a very good job at because we sold through, of course, the entire vintage. And um, it is a grand vintage. Um, it, it so happens that uh, it's a warm vintage. And I have a tendency to like warm vintages later rather than earlier. And I have a tendency to like cooler vintages earlier rather than later. So I think that with time, this is going to be one of the vintages for the ages, and uh, uh, which will which will uh, age beautifully well, well into 50, 60 years. Uh, uh, it's got the structure, the acidity, uh, the tannin, um, the uh, and the fruit to uh, to really make something quite extraordinary. Early on, when we released it, I couldn't tell one vine vineyard from the next, and God knows I taste a lot and a lot of burgundy, and I really know the differences between uh, between vineyards. But in 05, in a warm vintage, it's very, very hard to tell because the um, uh, fruit characteristics come across more, uh, uh, much more uh, uh, preeminently than uh, uh, than the vineyard differences. Cooler vintages, it's much easier to say, oh, this is from this vineyard, that's from that vineyard, these are the characteristics I want to find. Um, and that's probably why I don't like as much warm vintages when they're young. That being said, I absolutely know that there's a, a ton of people out there that will really enjoy them. And I'm not against uh, uh, people really getting a kick out of a warm vintage, for example, if that's if that's what pleases them. Because bottom line, um, the, the end consumer is who puts the bucks down on the table and buys that wine, and they should be rewarded with a good bottle of wine that they enjoy. And uh, I think it's a great thing that some of some people like the warmer vintages. Some people like the cooler vintages. Um, 06. 06, um, I'm not a big fan of 06. Um, there was a, a phenomenon that happened where grapes went to maturity extraordinarily fast um, uh, in the last last few days of harvest. Uh, people had maybe scheduled uh, the harvest maybe a week later or something like that. So you couldn't get the teams to come together and pick exactly at that moment. So there's a lot of surmaturity problems. Uh, that plus an electrical storm that happened over the Cote de Bone. And um, uh, every time you have an electrical storm, Chardonnay grapes turn brown. I didn't know that. And uh, they, go, uh, they, they, they mature extraordinarily fast. So it's not my favorite vintage personally. That being said, they're drinking beautifully now, and uh, there's a lot of people who who are are really enjoying them uh, uh, at the moment. They're in uh, they're still in tail end of their primary aromas, so you're there's an announce of secondary aromas on those. So uh, uh, that's uh, um, that I'll, I'll see how it evolves. I might I might change my mind later on and 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 like the vintage better. Um, um, O5s, by the way, um, are opening up on the village level um, quite nicely, and uh, and I like them much better than I liked them at first. And uh, and every once in a while, I'm, I'm popping Bourgogne Rouge, uh, Pastougrain, Aligoté, uh, things like that, and uh, uh, and having just just tremendous pleasure, uh, uh, tremendous pleasure drinking them. O um, seven. Beautiful white vintage. I mean, really classic and, and gorgeous. One that, that has good potential to age. They're beautifully balanced, and balance for me is the holy grail. Um, 07, 
in reds. Uh, it's a more amiable vintage. It's really a drinker. When I ran out of 2000s, I started drinking 07s. I have great pleasure drinking them. They're not wines that you're going to spend a, a tremendous amount of time intellectualizing or discoursing about and so on and so forth. But um, but they're really, really delicious, and they're a great drink, and they're marvelous to have bottle around and have a great conversation with a friend um, or friends without paying too much attention to the wine and just having an extraordinarily satisfying drink. 08, love 08. Uh, cool vintage, uh, super high-toned, beautiful acid, beautiful uh, structure, maybe a little a little thin in fruit for a lot of people. But structure and acid is, is my deal, So, uh, or what I like, young. Those uh, present really beautiful differences from vineyard to vineyard, and I think it's the clarity and the purity in that vintage is beautiful. Again, they're, they're opening up now. Uh, we'll talk about open opening cycles, uh, which I feel have changed from uh, before to now. 09, warm vintage again, big vintage, abundant vintage, really good vintage, very luscious, very fat. Uh, again, that's one vintage that's losing its baby fat right now. It's tightening up. Uh, the whites, which might have seemed a little blousy uh, when we first tasted them or we were tasting them in cask, are tightening up quite nicely. Um, I'm rapidly starting to like the vintage again. It's funny because in the market last year, I was selling 08s and 09s. And uh, I literally, for the first time, had a 50-50 split between liking cool vintages and warm vintages. Before that, all these years, it's been a rider-driven rider -driven, uh, uh, market. People only really wanted to buy the big, concentrated, generally warm vintages that writers were writing up as being uh, being the great vintages, and um, I'm not seeing that anymore. Uh, with the with the young sommeliers and retailers coming onto the scene, these are people that I don't think they're 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 keeping an eye to the writers, uh, but they're also keeping an eye to the blogosphere and the uh, 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 social media and their own personal tastes. And I think that it's less press driven today. At least I see that in the buying patterns. I still think that writers offer up the most comprehensive comprehensive uh, report uh, on any given vintage that you possibly can have. And because of their consistency um, in terms of tasting, once you learn how to read them and how what it means for you are still one of the most important sources of, uh, of information you have out there. Combined with your retailer and your sommelier, by the way, because uh, th those are also people that taste across the board consistently, and uh, if they're truly service-oriented, can really make a difference for uh, uh, the consumer in the end. But so You're not going to get away without talking about 10. Yeah, 2010. <laughs> um, by all means, classic Burgundy collectors uh, uh, vintage. The balance is exquisite, beautiful density, um, the structure is clear, the vineyards are clear, and it's got enough density to, uh, to make it an important vintage, if not a grand vintage for me. So it combines some of the attributes of a warm vintage and some of the attributes of a cool vintage, which, uh, which I find is, is marvelous and expresses itself uh, extraordinarily well with beautiful clarity. I mean, um, you, if you were to do a terroir tasting, if you possibly could do it with tens, you would have such a, a such a clarity in, in 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 discovering vineyards and and how each one tastes. 
Unfortunately, uh, we're, we're already looking at uh, lower production levels, and, uh, and hence they're harder to get. Uh, 2011. Whites are delicious. Uh, the Cote de Bone is just, just so drinkable. It's hard to keep your hands off of them. I mean, beautiful, approachable. My mother and Michel Lafarge say it's 1966 is the, is the vintage that comes to mind. Just when we were tasting them out of barrel, you just wanted to get a pitcher uh, 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 and, and draw a pitcher and take it to lunch with you and just drink the whole thing up. It's so yummy. Balanced. Uh, you see beautiful clarity between the uh, uh, between the vineyards, but but a bit you know lighter, less less weighty, less dense. In the Cote de Nuit, you have much more density, and here you have in certain cases people that did better than 2010. So that's really a domain to domain thing. Beautiful vintage uh, in the Cote de Nuit, and I think a keeper as well. 2012, 2012 uh, might be one of those other extraordinary vintages. The uh, the density on the wines is is uh, ex- uh, just extraordinary. Clarity again, beautiful structure, but bigger, more concentrated than 2010. So um, that's that. 2013 too 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 early to say. But we have had problems again with hail and the Cotabone and yes, uh, got red Cotabones, and that very much concerns from uh, the. Northern end of Volnay Sontno to the lower parts of the mountain of Corton on the southern, western, uh, southwestern slope. So, and again, some vineyards were up to 90% destroyed, and some vineyards right next to it were only 10% extra, uh, destroyed. One must not think of a hailstorm as being one solid sheet of the uh, same size hailstorms, uh, hailstones falling down over a number of kilometers. It is, it, 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 it's focused, sporadic. It can totally destroy one vineyard and the vineyard next, next to it can be rather unscathed. Uh, to wit, for example, in Savigny-les-Bones, which has two slopes, one which is the north slope facing south and the other one which is the south slope facing north or facing east, um, the north slope facing south was very badly hit. The south slope facing east was not that damaged. So, uh, to give you some vineyards, uh, that would be Peuillet, Savigny les Bonnes les Peuillet, Les Jarons, Aux Jarons, Dominode, Narbenton, Marconnet. And there's been a fair amount of rain in 2013. Yes. Well, um, rain in and of itself is not a bad thing. The, the, uh, uh, the uh, it replenished the, uh, uh, the the water tables, which which had been had been low and um, uh, needed some replenishing. It depends when it falls. For example, if you have rain at flowering, basically what it's going to do is going to uh, wash out the pistil, and hence the uh, grapes are going to grow are going to be shot berries. Shot berries are basically grapes that have not been fecunded and therefore have no pips and are tiny and small. And if you imagine a grape bunch, these would be very sparse on the, uh, on the bunch and you'd see the entire stem structure. Of course, that means a hugely reduced crop, but it also means a concentrated crop. And that, for example, is one of the problems that happened in 2012. But um, uh, there's, there's many other... Uh, things that can reduce a crop, uh, oidium, mildew, which are uh, fungus attacks. Um, you can have 
a north wind, a hard north wind, uh, which comes at the end of the growth season that can literally desiccate grapes, just basically through wind uh, going through the vineyards and eating up the moisture uh, inside the berries. There's so many things that can... What about those drinking windows? How does Burgundy evolve? Winemaking from my childhood to now has changed extraordinarily. When I was a kid, a lot of the winemaking was uh, with people who had learned from their fathers and grandfathers. And so it was sort of an empirical knowledge that was, uh, that was transmitted from, uh, from one generation to the next. And people didn't have real understanding of uh, maybe uh, malolactic fermentation or real understanding of what of Brettanomyces, real understanding of what happens when you put whole cluster or not whole cluster, uh, the amount of pigeage that you need to do, and so on and so forth. So the wines that um, I was tasting when I was young were much more wines to be laid down and needed time to uh, to evolve and round out and, and become more polished and uh, more uh, more uh, drinkable. And it was harder to drink them uh, straight off early. And then you had, uh, under the impulse of uh, winemakers like uh, Dominique Lafont, well, Jacques Cess to start, uh, Dominique Lafont, uh, uh, Nicolas Patel's father, Gérard Patel, uh, Rumier, and so on and so forth, who had gone to school and did start bringing some uh, technical advances to winemaking. Of course, there was Henri Jaillet that was very, very important in terms of getting everybody to de-stem and, and cleaner practices in the, uh, in the Alabash. So winemaking evolved, and I remember having a conversation, it must have been in 99 or something like that, with Dominique Lafont, where he said, a good wine should be good from its start to its end during its whole aging process. And that rubbed my education the wrong way, so to speak. Because that's not what you had encountered. That's not what I had encountered. You needed to lay the wines down, with the exception of, for example, 1966, which was drinkable immediately. But that was the vintage that allowed that, not, not the winemaking. And then now you've got a new school of winemakers who might, I, I think have integrated everything that Dominique and, uh, and Christophe Rumier and the like had tested uh, throughout the 80s and the 90s. And this is now acquired knowledge, and uh, it's almost immediate, and it's taught in schools. And they come to the table with much vaster knowledge than their previous, uh, the previous generations. Hence, have changed their thought processes um, uh, about how to approach um, uh, vinification. And one of the things is that they're managing tannin in a very, very different way was uh, managed uh, uh, a number of years ago. And we're getting wines where the tannin seems to be almost integrated from the get-go. And um, uh, this has to do with uh, an infusion method of, uh, of alcoholic fermentation rather than an extractive method of alcoholic fermentation where you're concentrating on the skin rather than on the pip. And there's a recrudescence of use of uh, stems because they understand more the the uh, the problem of phenolic ripeness, which is ripening of the skins and the pips and the uh, uh, stalks. So now we have wines that are really quite delicious from the start. Uh, remains to see if these are going to age in the same way or in a different way, because it's not the same set of tannins that that have been extracted, and hence one could surmise that there's going to be a different uh, aging curve. I don't know. I mean, honestly, we'll 
time will tell. It seems like the market has has gravitated towards those wines as being something that people want to buy in terms of the softer tannins at youth. Like we've seen producers like Favorly would be a good example. Obviously not someone you work with, but they're, they have done that. The tannins are less hard now. I've and got an immense respect for Favely. More and, commercially uh, successful. I have purchased Favely for my own seller uh, from the time where Francois was in uh, at the head at the helm to now uh, Erwan, and I love the change. Uh, uh, I love the change at, at Favely. Favely is a very particular, uh, uh, particular, uh, um, very, very particular uh, uh, thing because uh, it goes back to what I was saying about Nuit Saint Georges. Um, Nuit Saint Georges, for the longest time, because it was not commercially that attractive, didn't really have the money to refurbish the wineries, and there was sort of a, a um, um, an agreed sense of how Nuit Saint Georges should be. Uh, a traditional Nuit Saint-Georges should be, and a lot of people were vinifying in that in that direction. First, because they thought that that was the direction they should go in. And second of all, because their uh, wineries were not maybe quite adapted well enough to uh, handling the grapes or, or, or handling the grapes less um, than, than they had previously. For example... I remember having a talk with uh, Christian Gouge about um, redoing his winery because they had to go through a destemmer that also crushed the grapes and hence sometimes crushed the pips. And then they would feed feed the wine through a tube into the uh, different vats. And that, of course, handles the grape much more than um, uh, uh, maybe destemming with a modified destemmer that doesn't crush the grape and literally you know uh, putting the grapes uh, uh, very gently into the uh, into the vat so they redid the winery and immediately just having redone the vi- uh, the, the winery the younger wines came across as less uh, uh, less tannic not that they were less tannic because i actually asked what are the analyses saying i said well we got the same amount they're just different tannins so there's a big change in nuit saint georges and Erwan was probably the leading light there because they could refurbish the winery in, in one fell swoop. And, um, uh, and I think it created an impetus uh, in Nuit Saint-Georges. And, and now we're seeing a beautiful revival of, of the town. So, uh, yeah, Erwan, Erwan's done some good there. And I wonder if we could talk about the distillates that come out of Burgundy for a moment. Mar and Fine? Yeah. Ha-ha. <laughs> There's very little of it made uh, these days. I absolutely love them. So Mar is grappa, essentially, and Fien would be associated to cognac, uh, so to speak. Uh, basically, Mar is done from the must, and uh, Fien is done from the lees, so a little bit of wine left over with the lees. They're both delicious. They're both after-dinner drinks, obviously, or, or before-dinner drinks, if you're so inclined. They need, in my opinion, some time and cask to, to really evolve and uh, be ready to uh, be ready to be bottled. You don't want a very young uh, fiend or mar because they can get very aggressive. And some distillers are better than others. So uh, you almost need to know who it got distilled by to really know uh, uh, really know who's doing a good job. I'm trying slowly but surely to put together a collection for the American market, and uh, but it's a whole different licensing process, and 
it's it's a difficult thing to do and there's very 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 little of it are there general rules of thumb i mean is it like hey you know a guy who works with red grapes tends to do better at fiend than a guy who works with white grapes or the opposite or are there things that as a buyer i might want to know going into purchasing one i'd never had before no two of my favorite fiends one comes from a red winemaker and the other one comes from white winemaker um there's they're just extraordinarily different and they have a different level of finesse they have a different level of uh, of sort of fruit component uh, so to speak and are there Oudavis there? It seems like at one time Burgundy was known for some Oudavis production, and it seems to be less common now. Well, it used to be that you had the right to produce your own Oudavis, and you had the right to a certain number of uh, liters per year. Uh, Madame de Gaulle abrogated uh, that her hereditary transmission of, of the right. Uh, hence, there's a lot of people who did not pay or continue to pay to keep that right. Uh, because it's uh, an onerous uh, uh, thing to do, and there are a few Odevies. The 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 best Odevies that are coming out of the region, in my opinion, are uh, Rulo. Uh, They're very just good. Just an extraordinary job. Now his father used to do extraordinary Odevies, which I got to taste when I was a kid. Uh, Guy Rulo, and uh, Jean Marc has uh, you know uh, taken on the uh, the flag and. Uh, is making extraordinary stuff. There's some other. There's like three or four small producers of eau de vies, um, in Burgundy. They're not very well known. They're certainly not distributed in the United States. A lot more cassis is distributed than eau de vie. A lot more liqueurs. You know, you told me once that the business of wine took your mom away from you for yeah. a period of time as you were a kid. I can imagine having a bunch of adults downstairs during dinner or during the afternoon when you want to spend time with the family and now it becomes a different kind of occasion as a, as a young kid. But it seems like it's also been a way to reunite the family with you both brothers working in the business again. What's your feeling on that? Well, when we were kids, mom went on a lot of business trips because she was basically uh, single-handedly uh, running her company and uh, uh, had to do a lot of sales trips. So she was gone, you know, a month at a time and so on. And it was really tough uh, when we were kids because we felt abandoned. Um, the the amount, my, my parents, whether it was for the wine business or not, always received, uh, uh, I mean, you know, four to five times a week. Uh, since I was a kid, so there was no there was no um, family time. It was only much later, literally, when I went into the wine business uh, here that I started reconnecting with my mother, and um, it's been it's been fantastic reconnecting her, with her as an adult because uh, I, I just don't know we have we have uh, just a great relationship and we we work together marvelously well. Peter Wasserman of Becky Wasserman Selections, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.